Hey church, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. If you're new with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. We are back in the book of Acts after what has been for us actually um, a couple of a doozies of a Sunday. Zach, can I say that? Um, the last couple of weeks, it's been, um, it's been good. It's been real. It's been really good. Um, just to beat it, I didn't even plan that. It's been, uh, it's been you can tell, right? I, I'm not very funny. Okay, so here we go. So, so it, it's, been, it's been a good couple of weeks for our church family talking about the life of the church, both here locally and across the world globally. It's been a good couple of Sundays just talking about the realities of uh, the things that the church faces, some pressure and things from without, and, um, and the way the church responds, especially to things like the sanctity of human life as people are created in the image and likeness of God. And this morning, we're going to be talking about another challenge that the church faces. And, you know, as I talk to pastors around our county and around our country, really, I've, I've been talking to lots of them, and this has been a really hard season for the church. There's been so many challenges over the last couple of years for the church. That is the capital C church. And many local churches have faced incredible challenges. And as we study the book of Acts, it's, it's a wonder that the church just actually survives <laughs> in light of all the challenges that it faces, much less like thrives in certain seasons. And we do see the church in the book of Acts thriving even in spite of a lot of challenges. And the same is true for the church today. The, the church today in pockets and in places is thriving even in the midst of all the challenges that it's facing. And the church faces challenges from outside. In the book of Acts, that's true. There is pressure and there is persecution. As you study the book of Acts, you see that there's, there's constant pressure from the culture on the church. And there's even persecution that finds its way coming against the church. There is pressure from the outside, but, but there's also some challenges it faces from the inside. Challenges that the church has that, that wells up from within itself. And as we look at the book of Acts, we see that these challenges are theological in nature, they are missional in nature, and they are philosophical in nature. There are, there are theological differences that people have with each other, and some of them are, are so strong that it's like you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian based on those theological differences. There are also philosophical differences and missional differences. Like we're supposed to do this mission over here or this mission over here. We're supposed to do it this way or this way. And those differences sort of well up from within the life of the church and they can create conflict in the life of the church. It's another way that the church struggles or faces struggle, not just from the outside, but from the inside. And if you've been a part of the church for long enough, for any period of time, <laughs> you've, you've seen that the church has had to walk through these challenges both from without and from within. And, and the challenges from within a bit are what we see unfolding here this morning in, in Acts 15. And we're going to concentrate on the first few verses in this passage. Verse 36 says, After some days, Paul and Barnabas... Paul said to Barnabas, rather, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are, see how they're doing. Well, if we stopped there, everything would be just fine because there are some days, it said after some days, and we don't know how many days this was. But after some days, after this period of time, there are some days in the life of the church, some seasons 
in the life of the church where everything just feels so nostalgic. It just feels like everything is going perfectly. Everyone is on the same page theologically. And everyone is on the same page missionally. Like, this is what we believe, and this is what we are about. And everyone in the church is on the same page philosophically. This is how we do it. This is what we believe, this is what we're about, and this is how we do it. And everything seems just kind of too good to be true. And this is where Paul and Barnabas and their leadership team have been here in Acts 15 after some days. Some days of theological unity. They'd just been up to Jerusalem and had the Jerusalem Council, and they just agreed on, like, these are the truths of the gospel, and we're going to continue to proclaim these things. I mean, they're coming out of a tremendous season of theological unity and of missional unity. We're going to preach the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles, to Jews who need to hear the gospel, and to anyone else who also needs to hear the truth of the gospel. There's a missional unity. We're going on two fronts now. And they've been having these unbelievable days of philosophical unity where Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem and then there's the pastors and the elders and that giant megachurch there and, and, and they meet together and they're on the same page philosophically about what to do and they write a letter to all the churches to do it. Like this is like, this is a nostalgic moment in the life of the church. And here we're going to learn one of three lessons this morning, and I think it's something like this, that the church is most alive when it is theologically, missionally, and philosophically united, when it has theological, missional, and philosophical unity. It's most alive. And this series in the book of Acts was called Church Alive, and we see the Holy Spirit breathing life into his church, and this is when the church is most alive, and we see it unfolding here in the pages of Acts 15. And this has been seasons like this in the life of Village Church where, where we all know together what we believe. And we all know together like what we are supposed to do. And we all know together how we are supposed to do that. For some of you who have been around the church a long time, you, you know that maybe, maybe it feels like that all the time to some of you because you're so involved in the life of the church. But you know there have been seasons like when this church was sort of rebirthed and replanted about a dozen years ago, I, there were some hard days in the beginning. It was, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was hardly fun and mostly hard. You know, just at the beginning when you bring two, quite frankly, come some unhealthy kind of groups of people together and you, you, you birth a church out of that, which you should probably never do unless Jesus tells you to do it. And there were all kinds of reasons why we believe he did. And so here we are today, you know, about a dozen years later. But in those early days, like, Minus some of that, there was like a nostalgic time when, when everyone just seemed like God is doing a new thing and we're all doing it together. I was talking with the, some of the elders this week and we were talking about um, the life of the church and just there was a season like 2014 to 2015 where it just sort of seemed like we could do no wrong, you know, if that makes sense. Like things were just clicking in every single way. And it just felt like this nostalgic time of ease in the life of the church after some seasons of sort of unrest and some difficulty. I'd even say that, that the quarantine was kind of like a time like that for us when, when, when so many people in the life of our church were like, we're supposed to be gathered together as a church and 
we were one of the first churches that I knew around Orange County even, especially in Irvine, that were, were gathering together and were outside and we all kind of came in the different ways that we felt comfortable, whether we're coming inside or pulling up on the, on the outside or standing behind the hedges, but we were all there together being the church and, and new people were coming into the life of the church and there was just a season of like, wow, this is just beautiful. But at some point, those days, unwantingly, they, they seem to end. They always do. The church kind of fluctuates. The, all those things happen in the life of a church for all kinds of reasons. At some point, those days unwantingly seem to come to an end, and new days begin. Maybe even new days when the theological unity stays the same. But new days when missional unity might change. There's a different mission we're supposed to be about, and some really want to be on it, and some are like, is that really what we're doing? Maybe even new days when philosophical unity might change. We know what we believe and what we're supposed to do, but, but not all of us agree on exactly how we're supposed to do that. And this is what we see happening in Acts chapter 15 with Paul and Barnabas. Like their theological unity, listen to me, it would not change. And their missional unity it would not change. They knew what they believed and they knew what they were supposed to be doing, but their philosophical unity, it would change. They had a disagreement about how to do that. Although they were still agreed on what they believed and what they were called to do, in this season, they were not agreed on how to do it. And we find that in 37 and 38. Look at it with me. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. See, they were agreed together that they should visit all the churches that they had planted. That's the missional unity. That's the mission. In this season, we're going to go visit all the churches that had been planted. And we're going to reinforce the truth of the gospel. That's theological unity. They had both of those things. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along, and Paul did not. And for the first time, there was a philosophical disunity between these two leaders in the church. And the question is, why? Why, why would that happen? Well, Luke tells us why. Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And if you're like me, you, you, you know the book of Acts in general, and maybe you're, you know, you're remembering the themes and the seasons, but in your mind, what, when was that? Well, it was in Acts chapter 13. And just for a quick refresher, for one minute this morning, let's, let's return there to Acts 15 and see what, what happened. Starting in, uh, what verse is that? Starting in verse 4. So, beginning, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, that's a good thing, Right? They went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So here's John Mark with them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. That's pretty good. But Elymas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. You ever talk to someone like that? <laughs> You're like, I, I want to, but 
<laughs> it gets better. Full of deceit and, and villainy. <laughs> Why will you not stop making crook the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see sun for some time. Ever wanted to do that to someone, right? You know you have. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeing people, uh, seeking people, rather, to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. You think? Right? And when he saw that what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here's the key. Part, when Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Pergia and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went out from Pergia and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Now, we don't know why John Mark left. Why? There's still a question. Why did he leave? Maybe he left because he was scared. I mean, this is your first missionary journey. You sell, you get to an island. You're like in a confined space. You can't get away. And there's these false teachers and magicians and crazy stuff is happening. And people are losing their sight. And, and even though someone came to know Jesus, maybe he's like, you know, check please. You know, I am, I'm done. It's enough for me. Maybe he was scared. And you know, sometimes people are scared to, to in, get engaged in the mission of God. They don't know what it's going to entail. And sometimes it, and, and maybe John Mark was just not up for it. Maybe he was scared. Maybe he was tired. And sometimes the work of God gets tiring. Sometimes being part of the mission of God gets tiring. They said they went around the entire island of Cyprus. They, this was a long journey. They were doing hard work. Maybe he was just tired. Maybe John Mark left because he wasn't feeling like these were his giftings. Like he's watching Paul and Barnabas do some teaching, especially Paul, and he's really good at it. And maybe he was thinking like, I'm just not gifted at this stuff. So like they got it covered. Like I'm, I, I'm just going to go back home. Maybe he felt like he wasn't needed. John Mark, it said, that was there to assist them. Maybe he thought, look, Paul's doing most of the teaching and Barnabas is doing most of the encouraging and they seem to be getting on pretty well. And we've got kind of a good team of people. And like, I just, maybe I'm not needed. Maybe he went home for that reason. Or maybe John Mark went home because, because he thought there were more important priorities back home. He's like, yeah, this is good. But like, and, and I want to be involved in ministry in some way. But like, I got this, I got my work and I got this thing and that thing. And we don't ultimately know why he left, but we know that he did. And whatever the case, Paul clearly didn't think John Mark was the kind of leader that would be up for leading in the next season. And he spoke really straightly and really prophetically about it, even though Barnabas felt really differently about it. I mean, I think as we look at the leaders in this particular scenario, Paul was a more prophetic leader. Like he was leading mostly through his teaching and definitely had a leadership gifting, a strong one. And he was leading some through his shepherding. While Barnabas was, was more of a priestly leader. And he was leading mostly through his shepherding and then some through teaching. And Barnabas, of course, had some leadership gifting, but it was not like Paul's. That's clear. Paul was apparently the kind of leader that when push came to shove would, would maybe focus on the mission Maybe didn't have time or didn't take as much time to, to think about 
or can we say put up with individuals who weren't committed to the mission or as committed to the mission as he was. I remember being in college and trying to decide, you know, do I want to be part of the Navigators or Campus Crusade for Christ? This is a gross overgeneralization, by the way. It was what I felt. If you're part of either of them, I, I like both. So I just ended up being part of both, right? But it's like, dude, the navs are serious. Like, like all these things to get in and like, if, you don't, if you're not a mission, they might not have time for you. I, that's what I felt like. And the, the campus crusade was like, yeah, come on, let's go. You know, it was like, it was just like, whatever, you know. And, and I know that's, again, a gross overgeneralization. But it's like, it just felt like to me there was like two different approaches. And they were both great. I ended up being part of both. There are different styles. This is what was happening here in, in part. And, and while Barnabas might have been the kind of guy, apparently the kind of leader that would more focus on the individual and pause the mission for a moment to bring someone along. When push came to shove, he might slow down to address the personal needs of one of the other leaders before getting on with the mission. This is a, a prophetic leader and a priestly leader. They're really different. Now I want to pause here and say this. Luke doesn't give us any indication that either of these approaches were wrong. Like I, I, I've, I've, I've dealt with leadership in the church for a long time and sometimes I felt like, like that sort of like driven kind of leadership and it can be toxic it's in its own way. It's just we shouldn't lead with that much drive and this is in part what Paul is doing and, and Luke doesn't say like this is a wrong way to lead and there's been other times where I've looked at this sort of like priestly kind of leadership and itself can, can err in some ways and be too, for lack of a better term, maybe soft or, or compliant or easy and, and, and Luke doesn't look at that and say that is wrong either. He doesn't look at either style of leadership and, and say these approaches are wrong. I mean, ideally, these two kinds of leaders actually work very well together. They complement one another. But there are seasons in the life of churches, local churches even, when the philosophical differences become so great that, that a situation like this kind of becomes a thing. And when it does, a, a tension gets created and I like to call it courteous Christian conflict. <laughs> because we're Christians, we want to be courteous, but we're like, we're in... We're, at, we're in conflict. And we see this happening here in Acts chapter 15. Look at verse 39 and 40. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And here I think we learn a second lesson this morning, if, if we can call it that, that the life of the church can be threatened when the theological, when it has theological or missional or philosophical disunity. Now, the theological one is obvious. Like, if we don't agree on the truth of the gospel, like, yeah, the life of the church is threatened because you're either part of it or you're not. You either believe the gospel or you don't. You either follow Jesus alone or not. Like, yes, the life of the church is most obviously threatened that way. That's not what's happening here. And the life of the church can be threatened missionally when we think we're supposed to be doing this mission and not this mission or this one and not this one. And, and that's kind of a second level, a second way the church can be threatened. And that's, again, it's not what's happening here. But what is, is there's a philosophical disunity. And, and when there is, the life of the church can be threatened. And Luke doesn't hide the sharpness of this disagreement. And 
you know, this week I was um, driving Luke to school one day, and, um, and as I do, I always take the, the scripture reading from our scripture reading uh, plan, and, and I take a portion of it, and I do a little devotional with him on the way to school. And so we talk about these things and try to connect it to our life as men. And, and we were recently talking about one where, you know, the Bible just doesn't hide things. It just, it, it, it says what it is. And we got talking about this idea that one of the ways that we know and we believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God is that it doesn't hide this stuff. Like it doesn't hide the reality that, that Peter denied Jesus three times. Let me tell you, if, if you wanted to, to, to create it and make it something your own and you were the guy that did it, you would not have allowed that, especially since Peter was the leader of the early church. So if you're the leader of the early thing and that basically like not too great story about you like is in there, you, you would take it out. And this is one of the reasons we know the Bible is what it is because it doesn't skirt this stuff. It, it puts it out there. It says like, yeah, this happens. Is the church perfect? No, it's not. Are there hard things that happen in the church? Yes, there are. And here it is in the life of the early church. Luke doesn't hide the sharpness of the disagreement. When it says there was a sharp disagreement, there are two words associated with that word. One is irritation <laughs> and one is incitement. Like Paul and Barnabas were irritated with each other, like rubbing each other the wrong way. And it got to a point where they were like inciting one another. Like you think about that idea, you know, parents do not provoke your children to anger, but train them. Like there's this sort of borderline incitement that's going on. Like this is real and the Bible doesn't hide it. And Luke doesn't hide the sadness of this disagreement either. It's, it's part of the life of the church. It's a hard part. It's a sad part. But it is a real part. And we learn here that there are some things that are not sinful. It's like pressing up against, against it. But there are some things that are not sinful or even altogether harmful. But they are philosophical enough that Christians choose to separate from each other over it. I mean... There are some churches that believe the same thing and they believe they want to be on the same mission, but they do it a different way. Like one church believes in spiritual gifts and they're for today and they should all be used in the life of the church and the other local church does not. Or someone in the church believes that we should baptize professing believers and other Christians believe we should baptize infants and some of them believe and kind of err on this side of the sovereignty of God and salvation and some on this side and in some ways and, and sometimes it's just mission and vision and values things. I mean, over the life of our church, we've had people come to the village church and say, we just, we, I love what you believe and I love what the mission you're on, but I kind of want to do it this way. Early in the life of the church, there was, there was a group of folks that were here that were like, we brought them in and we said, why don't you come in and we'll train you to go back out. And the leader we thought as elders wasn't ready for that yet. And then they ended up meeting on Sunday evenings and just going out anyway, you know. And that, that was a hard time in the life of the church. There was a season in the life of the church where there was another larger church down the street that approached me and said, hey, you want to come pastor this church? And I said, no, I, I love my church. But it led to us talking about like doing something together and maybe doing this way or that way. I remember the days when King's Cross was planted and 
a core group of those people were here at the village church and they ended up having the exact same values as we do, delighting in Jesus, declaring the good news about Jesus, displaying the life of Jesus. And I love Chris. He just wanted to do it a little different, just a little more liturgy, a little more church history, a little bent this way, just the same thing, just a little different way. This happens in the life of the church. I think one thing we learned from a passage like this is that there is room for disagreement on philosophical things. There is. A church that was planted out of our church that just, we didn't intend to plant, like there's a lot of people that have come to know Jesus and they're doing just fine. The church down the road is doing just fine as well and I'm friends with their lead pastor and we talk pretty often about how to do ministry in our city. King's Cross is, is doing the things Jesus has called them to do in that area of South Orange County. And we've had little disagreements about philosophical things, very small things, but, but have become big enough to say we're doing this stuff on our own. But those things, listen, although you can disagree on them, they should not be a distraction from the mission of the church, which is growing and multiplying disciples. And that is why we exist. The village church exists to glorify God by growing and multiplying disciples. And there is a way we want to do that, who are delighting in Jesus and declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus. This passage is not meant to give us room for endless disagreements in the life of the church that holds up the mission of the church. This passage is not here to, to teach us that this kind of thing should happen in the life of the church, but that Jesus is sovereign, listen to me, even when it does. That we could be on the same page theologically and missionally and a little different over here philosophically, and guess what? Jesus is still sovereign. And he's still going to accomplish his work. Which brings us to the last thing this morning. Look at verse 40 and 41. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I think the third and final thing we see this morning is the life of the church can be protected even during philosophical disunity through the people of the church. You all have a part to play in this. The church has a part. You have a part to play in keeping and maintaining not only the theological and missional, but the philosophical unity of this church. Luke shows us the, the part the church played in maintaining this. I mean, the church refused, in a sense, to pick sides. <laughs> Now listen, the church isn't always like this. Like the church does pick sides. Like when, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he's like, hey, some of you are like, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas. And, and, and just like the disunity and the fragmentation and like, hey, I'm with this guy and I'm with that guy and I'm with this guy. And, and, and the church doesn't always respond like this. I mean, Corinth surely did not. But this church did. It says they commended the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And this second missionary journey apart, Paul would go this way and Barnabas would go this way. The second journey began like the first one ended. 
being commended by the believers. Look at Acts 14, 26, at the end of the first missionary journey. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They ended their first journey together, Paul and Barnabas, commended by the church by the, to the grace of God, and they had fulfilled a mission. Now they are starting a new one, although it be it so, be, be it separately. <laughs> but they're commended in the same way. Luke shows us the good that come, come out of something even as hard as this. Two separate teams, in a sense, being formed. And they are both commended by the church to the mission of God. Luke doesn't make a hard judgment on who was right and who was wrong. But simply the way Jesus used both of these men and both of these teams they established to continue the mission. Listen, now just on two fronts. And you know, as a lead pastor, you know, I, over the years I can look back at, you know, the thing with the people meeting on Sunday nights and kind of planning their own thing and eventually finding their way out. And, you know, I could have a hard problem with that. And if, and if I'm honest, I, I did. <laughs> it was hurtful. You know, I didn't want that. But after a number of years, as I look back, I was like, you know what? It is what it is. And Jesus is who he is. And he's used that in his own way. And praise God, he has. It doesn't mean so much to me anymore. What does mean a lot to me is that Jesus accomplishes his work. And if that's the way he wants to do it, and he wants to redeem those things, I think that's great. And as hard as this story is, it ends better than we might think. I mean, this is kind of hard to listen to. <laughs> yeah. The Bible includes this stuff that's hard to talk about. It's hard to listen to. But here's, here's the great thing. It, all, it, it ends well. It ends better than we think. And, and it gives me a sense to think some of this disagreement or some of this disunity or some of this philosophical stuff, in the end, it's going to end better than we think in the end because Jesus is good. The story is going to end better than we think, but we have to wait for Paul to write some of his letters to find out how. I think the first place we see it is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, when Paul's wrapping up. He says, do your best to come to me soon. He's talking to Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas gave up. Christians has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke has gone, Luke alone is with me. Here's what he says. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? For he is very useful to me for ministry. <laughs> Philemon 23 to 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The end of Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Listen to this. Concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. The guy that once deserted us, the guy that once I parted company with because I didn't think he was fit for the next session, look, he has grown and I have grown. And time has passed. And the mission of the gospel has gone forward. And it's been fruitful. And Jesus is saving people. And the Spirit is moving. And I have nothing against John and Mark. 
If he comes to you, welcome him. Don't take my side because I'm Paul. Welcome him. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? You know, there have been a couple of times where a couple of the, the guys that, that went out from this place in a way that wasn't the best have come back and said, hey, can we meet for coffee? Yeah, sure, that'd be great. You know, when over coffee, that person says something like, you know, I'm really sorry. And me say something like, I know. <laughs> me too. I'm really sorry I left the way that I did, you know. And I, I just want to say, like, if I had it to do over again, I would do it differently. Yeah, I know. And then begin to talk about all the things that Jesus is doing now. And that's kind of where it gets left off. And I think that's a beautiful place to leave it, don't you? Even if we don't see the kind of reconciliation this side of heaven, that, that kind of beautiful reconciliation, we will see it on the other side. Because Jesus has reconciled each one of us as individuals to himself in a way that could have never happened outside of him. Jesus has reconciled us to himself in every way and in the end can't help but reconcile us to each other as well. And we will all be ultimately and completely reconciled to one another. And I think that's part of the good news this morning is that the church is always alive because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The church is always alive. The church is most alive when there's theological and missional and philosophical disunity, but the church is always alive because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came to live a life we could never live, a perfect, sinless life on our behalf before God. Jesus came to die a death that we should have died on the cross and in our place and for our sins, and he has reconciled us to himself and through that to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and co-heirs together with Christ. And, and so if there are these little philosophical differences, like we're on the same page theologically and missionally and philosophically, we got some stuff. It's fine. Jesus will one day reconcile all of that because he has reconciled all of us to himself through the truth of his gospel. And I hope that's good news for you this morning, Village Church. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that, that your church is always alive because of your life and your death and your resurrection. And I want to thank you as one of the pastors of, of this church that, that you have um, given life to this church through the great theological unity and through missional unity and through philosophical unity. And I want to ask you to protect that, Lord. We thank you that scripture is, is real. It shows us what it really is. And we thank you that you don't hide this stuff from us, just like a, a good father who doesn't hide all the realities of life from their kids, but teaches them and trains them through it. But father, thank you for teaching us and training us this morning. Thank you for doing what only you can do in the life of the, your church, capital C, your universal church. And thank you for doing the things that only you could do in the life of the village church. Jesus, thank you for being the ultimate head of it so that it is always alive because your life is what leads it. Lord, we thank you. We love you. Our response is to worship you. And we do that in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen.